Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Chronic pain is not something just suffered by adults. Coming up, we'll hear the story of a Connecticut mother whose son experienced debilitating pain at times after sustaining a concussion at school. We'll find out about a treatment program that does not focus on prescribing pain medication. Now, has your son or daughter been diagnosed with a pain syndrome? You can join our conversation. That's later. Immigration reform in this country has taken an ugly turn after news the U.S. had opened, quote, tender age shelters to house more than 2,300 migrant children who were separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border. It stemmed from a zero-tolerance policy announced by Attorney General Jeff Sessions in April. After much public scrutiny, now President Trump has signed an executive order halting the separation of families seeking asylum in the U.S. But what does that mean for the families who've already been split apart? What plans are in place to reunite them? Joining us by phone now is Liz Willis, attorney and co-founder of the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, We know on Wednesday, President Trump signed an executive order that halts the separation of uh, separating children and and parents at the border. Um, What's your reaction to, I guess, the course of events? And why do you think the president did what he did yesterday? So I think, first of all, it's unclear exactly what this order is going to do or how it will be implemented, for one thing. Um, And I think it says in the order itself, it talks about the Flores settlement. That's a settlement that dates back to 1997, um, but recently um, kind of under when family attention was um, being litigated under the Obama administration, it was expanded to kind of uh, cover accompanying minors too, so minors that were in detention with their mothers. And it said that uh, those minors can only be detained for 20 days. And so the executive order says that they will, the Trump administration is gonna try to modify that settlement agreement, um, but that will require kind of going to the judge um, and doing that. If they're not able to modify it, um, it's unclear, I think, how they will keep families together if they plan to prosecute parents and kind of have them go through part of the process in detention, which would take longer than 20 days. Um, So I think it's still unclear how it will actually work. Um, I do think it's clear that um, Trump was bending under some pressure and the pressure from the public about this issue. But I want to encourage the public to kind of stay vigilant on this issue because it's not clear to me that family separation will totally end. And the alternative, family detention, um, is also really traumatic for children. Um, And yeah, and, and I've personally seen the family detention centers. They're run by private prison corporations, and there's kids that are really young that are in prison. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> it's training one bad thing for another. Uh, we've, we've heard the term, and I mentioned it earlier, these tender age shelters. You mentioned uh, yeah. that private contractors are the ones that are operating this. Uh, what, when we hear that term, what were, what were they exactly talking about in terms of tender age? How old were these children? So I don't know exactly what their definition was for tender age, but I um, I do know that a lot of the kids that are separated from their parents are very young, and that's one of the reasons that parents come with their children. Um, 
is because, or bring their children with them, is because the children can be very young, like toddler age, um, and you know, in in kind of elementary school age, um, and some in some cases extremely young. Um, so breastfeeding mothers and that kind of thing. Um, and that's often what you see in the family detention centers too, is that there are mothers who are still breastfeeding. Um, there are mothers who, there are toddlers, children that are two and three years old. Um, and so, and I imagine that the family separation policy resulted in children as young, I mean, breastfeeding children, but as children as young as two and three, um, being separated from their parents because parents, bring that, that children that age with them um, when they come um, for obvious reasons. Mm. So, um, yeah, very young children, mm. I think. Now, you had mentioned the Flores Agreement earlier, or Flores Settlement, I should say. Um, again, this would uh, this prohibits uh, children to be held in detention for more than 20 days. So moving forward, uh, there's talk of, of putting the children and parents together in family detention centers. Right. So how did they operate? And you mentioned under the Obama administration when there was a flood of unaccompanied minors coming through, this was something um, that they were also struggling with. Can you, can you remind us about um, those types of facilities? Yeah, so we currently have family detention centers in this country. Those um, kind of were revamped under the Obama administration, and that was uh, so the the centers that were started under him are still operating, um, and they detain mothers and children. Um, So, and in those detention centers, like I was saying, they have really, really young kids um, that are in the detention centers, kind of operated by two of the largest kind of private prison corporations in this country. So. Um, GEO and uh, Core Civic, which people might know from the like, federal detention context, criminal detention context. Um, and so, yeah, there was litigation around that when, when that first started happening under the Obama administration. Um, and uh, kind of the Ninth Circuit found that uh, children shouldn't be detained for more than 20 days, even if they were with a parent. And that's related to um, just the trauma of children being detained at all. And um, I think there are lots of alternatives to detention and family detention in particular. Family detention still results in separation. So if, if, for example, if two parents came with their child, a mother and a father, the father would often be separated from the rest of the family. So it still results in family separation. And it also isn't, um, isn't the best way to um, kind of work with families and children who have been through traumatic experiences. A lot of these families are fleeing extreme violence and um, would be much better to have some sort of community-based alternative to detention than, than housing them in detention centers. This is something that people really tried to push the Obama administration on, um, and it seems like the Trump administration is just going to double down on trying to have more family detention centers rather than um, ending family detention, which is the position of our organization and many other advocates who have been to those detention centers and seen, you know, just what it's like to have kids that young in in jail. Uh, this is where we live. On the phone with us is Liz Willis, attorney and co-founder of the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project. Uh, we're talking with her today, a day after President Trump signed an executive order halting the separation of children and families um, at uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, we were talking about some of the uh, options that the Obama administration used. Uh, you had mentioned a better alternative would be community-based uh, programs, uh, but you still want to be able to monitor uh, these individuals who are 
in the country uh, without uh, you know legal status here. So would ankle bracelets be another uh, alternative? Um, I think ankle bracelets are also um, an extremely harsh way to work with asylum seekers. They're very painful. They cause my clients that have them. Some of them have had them over two years, and they're very painful. They're they're hot. Um, you have to charge them all the time. They restrict your mobility, um, and I don't think that they're necessary. So, in pilot programs that the government never really implemented, um, kind of other nonprofits were trying uh, had kind of pilot programs where they were doing community-based management where they provide legal representation and other kinds of support to asylum seekers and other immigrants to kind of go through the process. And those those methods were very successful and they were much cheaper. Um, and they kind of were cognizant of the needs of individuals who have suffered trauma in the past um, and who are very vulnerable, including young children, mothers with children, pregnant women, um, and other asylum seekers, um, just making sure that they have the legal representation they need. Um, and what we found in our experience is that when um, when asylum seekers have legal representation, when they have the information that they need, they're able to go through that process without having to have any sort of, um, you know, criminalization of, of, their, um, of them and their families. And uh, I think we would advocate for community-based programs only and without having to have um, ankle monitors or be detained or anything else that Um, represents uh, some sort of criminal measure against individuals who are here seeking safety. And I think the baseline is we want to help asylum seekers and not not criminalize them. Um, And I think, yeah, so that's, I would, I would say that ankle monitors too are really, are really harmful and really, really difficult for asylum seekers. Um, And I think contribute to a lot of uh, the, kind of overall trauma and mental health issues that they might be struggling with already. So, uh, Liz, we only have a couple of minutes. I did want to ask yeah. you about the legal representation uh, mm-hmm. problem because we do know uh, the Health and Human Services Organization agency that was uh, that was given the oversight of, of these children. Uh, there are more than 2,300 children that are estimated to have been separated from their parent right. or parents. And so who's representing them? Uh, we know that the, the AP reported that uh, there are some of these migrant children that are, uh, are that were sent here in Connecticut. So it's not like they're all just hanging out uh, near the border. Um, who right. is representing them? Yeah, so the children will be sent all over the United States. They, they might have other relatives in the country that they could have been released to, but some of them will be um, held in OR custody or kind of long-term foster care. Um, and uh, there, are, there are organizations that are dedicated to representing unaccompanied minors, but unfortunately they already don't have enough, you know, attorneys to represent all the unaccompanied minors that need representation. Um, and it is not required to have, you know, um, minors going through the system are not guaranteed an attorney. They have a right to an attorney, but they're not guaranteed one. And a lot of those children are going to be very, very young. And we've heard cases where parents have been deported, um, I think probably in part because they lacked legal representation. Um, and I know that Kind, for example, who works with a lot of unaccompanied minors, are trying to connect parents who've already been deported with their kids who are still in the U.S. Um, and so I think it's going to be a long process. I know the government hasn't really explained how they will help people get reconnected um, or reunite families. Um, in some cases, that might happen if, um, if, a, if a parent is able to go through the process in detention and get released. They might get reunited with their, with their child after their release. 
Um, but it doesn't seem like the government is trying to facilitate that. Liz, and in well, the meantime... <laughs> Uh, we, unfortunately, we have to leave it there, but yeah, we appreciate you talking with us. Uh, Liz Willis, an attorney and co-founder of the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project. Um, again, there's a lot more that uh, needs to be uh, reported on in terms of what happens uh, to these minors and their parents, but we thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, has your child been diagnosed with a pain syndrome? We'll hear a story from a Connecticut mother, and we want to hear from you, too. Don't go away. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. More than 25 million adults experience pain daily, but pain syndromes can also affect children. Stephanie Dennis is a Connecticut mother who took her son to multiple doctors over the course of months before he was officially diagnosed with amplified chronic pain. Have you heard of this condition? Does your adolescent son or daughter have chronic pain? You can join our conversation. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at where we live. After their son finally received a diagnosis, the dentists found a program that did not rely on pain medication to treat their son, but the program was out of state. Tell us more about their story. Stephanie Dennis joins us from the studios of WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us a little bit about Cole's story. He was diagnosed with AMPS. We're going to learn a little bit more about that syndrome later. But what happened to him? Um, He sustained a head injury in his gym class um, during the sixth grade. He was playing floor hockey with the other children, and he slipped and fell and slid into a cement wall in the gymnasium. And so what happened after that? Uh, I assume you got a phone call from the school, but what were his injuries? Well, he felt quite nauseous afterwards, and he was taken to the nurse. At that point, the nurse was concerned that it might be a concussion, so they contacted me. I arrived at the school, and we went by ambulance to the ER. And when you got to the hospital, what did they tell you? Was it indeed a concussion? Well, they did some testing for him, but they didn't feel that a CAT scan was necessary at the time. Uh, They felt that he may indeed have a mild concussion, uh, but they weren't completely certain. Um, They did not feel that he needed to undergo cocoon therapy that most kids that sustain a a pretty severe concussion would go through where they're kept in a dark space with no um, lights and no sound. They figured he could go about his day um, just as he was before and just take precautions. And so you went home uh, hoping that um, any uh, residual effects from that fall would be diminished. But what happened to Cole? Did that pain go away? Well, the next few days, he seemed to have sensitivity towards light and as well sensitivity towards sound. So after about two or three days, I spoke with his pediatrician and we made a visit. Um, I expressed my concern and he stated that it appears that he definitely sustained a mild concussion um, based on the facts that he was obtaining at his examination and that we should kind of proceed with caution keep the lights dimmed down low. If he's bothered by screens or computer, try and limit the time. Um, The school bus, because it's very noisy, is tended to bother his ears, just maybe drive him to school for the next few days. And hopefully, over the next week, things would start to diminish slowly. And did that happen? Did you see any kind of uh, improvement over the next week or two? Unfortunately not. If anything, it seemed as though things were getting worse. Um, School environment with fluorescent lighting and children being loud and all the sounds and sights, it just seemed to irritate uh, the symptoms much more and exacerbate them. So after about three weeks, I decided to take him to a concussion specialist. 
And when you took him there, uh, what did they say? Was it that um, this was normal for after having a concussion or were there, was it a cause for concern at that point? Well, it was kind of an odd time to go to the specialist. Usually that is done within the first 24 to 48 hours after a concussion. So I knew that by going at the three-week mark, testing might not be very valid um, for the initial signs of a concussion when you sustain one. But because the symptoms seemed to be extended for such a long period of time, I was just wanted to go to just clear any air about what he had. Um, and they did the testing, and he did well on the testing. They didn't show any deficits that were alarming. If anything, the concussion specialist at the end of his examination and testing stated that she felt that maybe he he was uh, holding on to this a little bit longer than he should. Um, maybe it's a little bit more in his head than it was in pain, so to speak. <laughs> Well, how did you feel hearing that as his mother? You know, you, he's your child, and you want to um, you know, take what he's saying uh, for what it's worth, and, and you believe him when he's saying that he, he, he was uncomfortable, he was having this pain, the sensitivity to light and sound. I mean, how did you take uh, that response from the medical professional? Well, of course, it was said in in a, in a very professional and kind way, but it did. It was very disheartening. Obviously, I know that my child was indeed in pain, and though he is a tends to be a more sensitive or emotional child, I knew that what was going on was something serious and that I needed to think about that more over the next couple of weeks and kind of really pay attention as a parent because I didn't want to rule out completely what the doctor was saying either. So I continued to have him go to school. We took some normal precautions. We spoke to the school and told him that he was having these sensitivities. But at the same time, I told Cole that, hey, listen, I know that you're not feeling very well, but you're going to have to kind of rise to the occasion. These symptoms will dissipate over time. You need to kind of hold it together. So I'm playing tough mom and nurturing mom at the same time, which was difficult. And so as uh, the symptoms persisted, how did Cole describe uh, what he was experiencing to you? And how did that impact uh, his ability to continue to go to school? Well, he he was able to finish out the year because at that time the symptoms were just sensitivity. But I had noticed that come the beginning of June, as the year end was coming closer, that he was having ringing in his ears. So he was having tinnitus. And that was starting to become alarming to him because this sound was constantly in his ears. It would go for an extended period of time, and he didn't know what to make of it. So it wasn't until we were wrapping up the school year that symptoms started to take a turn. And then at that point, uh, when you were taking him uh, to different doctors and specialists, was he ever prescribed anything to help him? Well, initially, he went from the ringing in the ears um, then to a stabbing pain in his head. And that's when we started to seek um, other specialists, not just his pediatrician, where we went to the ENT and then to a neurologist over the next several months. Um, The ENT did not prescribe him anything. They did an MRI to make sure that his brain scan was clear. They did a hearing test. Um, We went to the neurologist, and they checked for migraines initially as well as whether this was residual effect of a concussion. They gave him a prescription on the off chance that it was uh, migraines, kind of like an uh, extra strength type of ibuprofen as a layman. That's the only way I know how to describe it. But they said if it wasn't working within two or three days, then clearly this was not what he needed to be taking, and it was something different. So he was on that for three days. It did not work. And that's really the only medicine he was ever on over the next year. 
That sounds like a really stressful time for you, uh, being a parent and not knowing what's going on with your child as you were being referred uh, to other specialists. I mean, how stressful was it for you, and where else did you seek information? Well, we were constantly online, I think, as most individuals and parents will do. Um, it's, that's not always a safe zone. We know that we can see things that are could be a little bit alarming and untrue. But because so many people were kind of shaking their head and not understanding what was going on with Cole, we felt the need that we had to investigate on our own. His symptoms started to drastically change, and the pain was constant in his head. He described it as a stabbing that would ping-pong through his head throughout the day. Um, and it became debilitating socially for him. He didn't want to go out to dinner. He didn't want to go to the movies. Um, we were withdrawing just not him, but as a family. And to see your child starting to suffer so much and to hear him start moaning in pain, it, it's, it's heart-wrenching. And how did you manage to juggle uh, these different appointments and, and trying to, to find out this information uh, when you, you've got, you know, your life to live? I don't know if you have other children, but just with, with work schedules and, and um, you know, handling uh, what your son is telling you. I mean, how are you able to juggle all of that, Stephanie? It was difficult, but honestly, I mean, the type of life that we live, we're, we're very fortunate. My husband has flexibility with his work. I was working part-time um, and still do with a physical therapy practice, ironically. Um, and my employer is a friend of mine and a mother, so she understood quite well. So she was very considerate throughout the whole process. And um, we tried our best to just work around everything. But mostly we were just heartbroken seeing Cole suffer because the pain went from his head later on into his whole body. And that's really when things took a really dark turn and he had a very hard time managing school um, and working and focusing when he had stabbing pain throughout his entire body at different levels. So at what point from the time he fell at school um, to the point that he was finally diagnosed with AMPS, how many months went by? I think about 10, and so almost a year. And so how did you get to that point where he, he finally received this diagnosis? We had been seeing the neurologist, and we had uh, three appointments over the span of two or three months. Um, and during that juncture, they did a boatload of testing of every gamut to see if there was anything that they could find in Cole that was just maybe just a very avant-garde and nothing came up. Um, right about the tail end of that, I was searching on the internet once again, and I came across something um, that talked about AMPS. And I, basically, my jaw dropped because I'm reading it going, oh my God, this may actually be it. I remember calling my husband into the room and he read it and he's like, I think that's it. And we saw the neurologist for our last appointment, and at the tail end of the appointment when he was pretty much saying, I've done everything I can, I mentioned to him this. And <laughs> he said that, well, maybe it could be, but quite honestly, the children that I've seen with this usually are coming in um, in wheelchairs and aren't walking. Um, and I was kind of startled. I was looking at my husband and later spoke to him saying, are they waiting for him to get to this point? because that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be able to help my son now. So we had made an appointment with the pediatric rheumatologist and had seen him within a week span of our last appointment with the neurologist. And we went into that appointment and my husband told me, whatever you do, do not tell him what you think it is, just let him do the testing. And that was over at Yale and they did the testing and sure enough, they came back and started to explain this unusual condition. And I had a big smile on my face, not because I was happy that that's what it was, but happy that after all this time we could finally 
say what it was. It was something real. So at that point, you were taking him to doctors, specialists, all in Connecticut. What then led you to Children's Specialized Hospital? Well, in our research um, to find out about um, AMPS, uh, we had come across um, the doctor that had founded the program, Dr. Sherry over at CHOPS, and we found out that there are very few hospitals in the country that really have a pain management program. Um, and we are fortunate enough living in the New England area that there is a few um, in our direct vicinity, and we heard about Children's Specialized Hospital and inquired about it and found that they did a terrific program that mimicked a lot of what the founding program was about. And so we made our appointment there. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Stephanie Dennis, a Connecticut mother who wanted to share her son's story of chronic pain. It's not just a syndrome experienced by adults. After the break, we'll hear more about the treatment program at Children's Specialized Hospital in New Jersey, which treats adolescents and teenagers without relying on pain medication. You can join our conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut has another plan for its 12 community colleges after an accrediting body rejected the state college system's original proposal to merge. On the next Where We Live, we'll ask President Mark Ojakian of the Connecticut State College and University System about this new plan. How are other states looking to change their higher education systems? We'll find out, and we want to hear from you. Join the conversation. That's tomorrow. Today, we're learning about amplified chronic pain. It's a syndrome that affects between 5 and 15 percent of children in the U.S. Connecticut mother Stephanie Dennis is sharing her son's story and how they sought out treatment options that did not rely on pain medication. Stephanie joins us today from the studios of WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. I wanted to bring into the discussion now uh, Dr. Catherine Bentley, physiatrist and director of the Chronic Pain Program at Children's Specialized Hospital. Dr. Bentley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having us. Uh, So your hospital is actually in New Jersey. This is where uh, Stephanie Dennis uh, was able to uh, seek treatment for her son, Cole. Uh, Before we get into learning more about uh, the chronic pain program there, tell our listeners again a little bit about AMPS, or Amplified Musculoskeletal Pain Syndrome. Yeah, so AMPS, or we call it AMPS in our program, it's Amplified Musculoskeletal Pain Syndrome. It's a kind of chronic amplified pain. So when I discuss this with patients, I talk about chronic pain syndromes in general. So chronic pain is pain that lasts more than six months, and it could happen from any reason. Now, there's also a little bit more specific kinds of pain, which are amplified pain. Amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome is very similar to juvenile fibromyalgia, where our patients are reporting that their whole body hurts. And that's exactly what Cole's mom was saying. You know, by the end, his whole body was hurting. It wasn't just his head anymore. There's other kinds of chronic pain that we also treat, which is something called complex regional pain syndrome, which used to be called RND or RSD. This is more um, more often a specific area of pain, maybe a patient's foot or hand, um, whereas AMPS tends to be more broad, more generalized pain. 
Uh, when we hear about uh, AMS, is this something that um, many children are diagnosed with when you look at the, the U.S. population? Well, it's a good question. There are some reports that people with chronic pain, pediatric or adolescent kids with chronic pain, is up to as high as 20%. However, we don't know exactly what portion of that is actually the amplified pain syndromes. So it's probably less than that, but it's definitely prevalent. And uh, Stephanie was telling us that um, her son was in the sixth grade when he had this injury. When we look at the age ranges of, of children that present with this, these symptoms, um, I mean, what are, what are some of the trends that, that you see? So in our program at Children's Specialized Hospital, we treat patients between the ages of nine, 11 and 21 or 22. However, we do see the syndromes in patients as young as eight or nine. Um, I would say it's typically, and this is not the case in Cole's situation, adolescent girls when you read the literature. Those are the patients who normally have this. Um, however, it can really happen at any time. We see kids in times of transition. Um, for Cole, I, we have to ask mom if he was going to a new school or anything like that. I'm not sure, but a lot of times we see youngsters going into high school or college, but it can really happen at any age. I also understand this is a diagnosis of exclusion. What does that mean exactly? So it means exactly what Cole's mom was telling you about. Um, unfortunately, to diagnose this, you have to rule out the other things. You know, you have to rule out things like concussion, other causes of headaches, other causes of body pain. And to do that, you have to have a lot of medical tests. And you could hear Cole went to a concussion doctor, a neurologist, an ENT. I was actually writing them all down while mom was talking. And it seems like you're chasing after something and not finding it. However, this really is a diagnosis of exclusion because we have to look for those other causes. Uh, a patient could have some sort of concussion and then have amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome also, so that is possible, but you do need to rule out all these other things. It's a stressful time for families as uh, they wait to see uh, what their child uh, will be diagnosed with. Uh, during that time, uh, is it common for uh, children to be prescribed painkillers, and is that a concern for some of the patients that end up coming to your program? Yes, you know, it can be. Um, different pain medications can be very appropriate for acute pain. However, when you're dealing with chronic amplified pain, mostly pain medications are not very appropriate anymore. And most of our patients, just like Cole's mom said, will tell you that the medicine doesn't really help. They try it and it doesn't help. However, we have to be really careful with medications and youngsters and what kinds of medications they're getting. Part of being in our program, the patient and the family have to be committed to coming off of the pain medication. So they don't necessarily have to be off them when they start, but we will work together as a team to have, help get them off of pain medicines. That doesn't mean they might not be on other medications that are very appropriate for them, but for amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome, we find that pain medicines don't really help. I mentioned that uh, you uh, work at the chronic pain program at Children's Specialized Hospital in New Jersey. So when a patient like Cole comes to you, explain exactly um, about your chronic pain program. It's not just a, a one visit every few months. I mean, it's very intensive. That's right. So we um, usually evaluate the patients as outpatients. Um, they're evaluated with a physiatrist and a psychologist or a mental health professional, and we may make different recommendations for them. One of the recommendations may be what Cole did, and it is our inpatient acute chronic pain rehabilitation program. So this is a very intensive therapeutic program where our patients come in and they get lots of therapies. So just to give you an example, most patients go in the pool five days a week where they have aqua therapy, followed by a half 
half an hour of meditation or some sort of mindfulness. It might be yoga. Um, And then they get about two hours of occupational therapy and two hours of physical therapy each day. On top of that, they have at least two hours of individual psychological counseling. We have group psychology. We have group activities. We have educational Um, sessions for the patients where they learn about different things like sleep and nutrition and exercise. We also have a parent component. So during the day when our kids are doing their therapy program, the parents are not with them, but we meet with the parents once a week to discuss the progress of each patient. And then we also have a parent educational session that's run by our psychologist, which is also weekly. You'd mentioned earlier uh, doctors have to be careful what kind of medication is prescribed to children. Uh, Why is this program drug-free, the thought behind that approach? Is it because of the concerns about addiction? Well, so once you get the diagnosis of something like amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome, you basically have the diagnosis of exclusion. So you're into that chronic pain part. And what our program is doing is trying to help our patients regain control of their their body. So a lot of our patients kind of feel like they don't have any control over their body and what it does and when it hurts. And what we do in our program is help them relearn that their body's okay and that they can do it. So what we do is, you know, it's a little bit the opposite when our child, if we're moms and our child gets hurt, we want to give them a Band-Aid, we want to give them ice, we want to give them a hug. And that's very appropriate when your child gets hurt initially. But in patients who end up with something like a pain syndrome, you actually have to kind of push through and work through it and actually use your body. So we do all kinds of things to help them learn that they're in control of their body and their body belongs to them and they can function. And one of the things is not needing external things such as pain medicine, even ice, you know, for a chronic pain syndrome wouldn't be appropriate so that they can use their body to get better and not medicines. Dr. Katherine Bentley is, is a physiatrist and director of the Chronic Pain Program at Children's Specialized Hospital. We're talking with her today as we learn more about amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome. This is a condition that a uh, Connecticut uh, mother, her son, experienced. Uh, Stephanie Dennis is joining us from the studios of WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, Stephanie, tell us about um, Cole's experience with this program and tell us um, how you managed to make it work uh, considering uh, travel and cost. Yeah. When we found out about the program, there was a great sense of relief, um, knowing that he was going to be going somewhere um, to get treatment. And even even he was excited. He was at the point, though, even as a 12-year-old, having to spend a month at a hospital um, without his family there all the time was a little bit nerve-wracking. He was excited to be able to do something to help him because at that juncture, he was not going to school any longer. He was spending most of his day just laying down growling in pain. It was just, it was very hard. So he was very excited to be doing something that was going to be working towards helping him. Um, The program there, he was, he just kind of went into it, flew right into it. Anything you can do to make me better, I'm going to try it. He was just at that juncture. Um, And we had been doing a lot of cardiovascular exercises and things that the program does do at the hospital. We started at home um, so that he was familiar with what he was going to experience. Um, I am in Connecticut, and the hospital is in New Jersey. I would try and spend about four days a week um, in New Jersey. Um, I couldn't spend it on the floor with him, so parents are not to be um, there with your child during the program for obvious reasons. So I would find things to do in New Jersey. 
for a good portion of the day, and then I would reconvene and see him in the evening and be able to sleep at the parent bed next to him. And then my husband would come up, and he would spend a day or two up there, and so we juggled a lot. But um, it was manageable. We have flexible jobs, so we were very fortunate. Uh, Dr. Bentley, you mentioned earlier uh, some of the therapies uh, with the program, but can you walk us through a typical day for a patient like Cole? Yeah, so um, a patient like Cole, and um, Cole's mom was right. He really did go at this with a wonderful attitude. You know, he was a pleasure to have in the program, and he was really ready for it. Um, Readiness to change is something that we talk about a lot with our patients. You know, this is something they have to be ready to do. No one comes in my office and says, I can't wait to come to your program, Dr. Bentley, but they have to at least be at the point where they believe that it might help them. Usually the parents are at that point, but we have to get our youngsters at that point also. So every morning, Monday to Friday, our patients go in the pool. It starts between 8.30 and 7.30 in the morning. So they have to get up and have breakfast and be really independent in getting themselves ready for the day. Um, In the pool, they do a half an hour of laps and then they do a half an hour of games and they love the games in the pool. It's very fun. Then they have a meditation session. So it's not all meditation that our patients think of when they think about it. We do lots of different active things um, and they meditate or do yoga for half an hour. Then they might have a break or they might start into their therapy day and they may have an hour of OT, which is occupational therapy, where we focus on core strength and desensitization as well as upper extremities. And they also would have physical therapy. Our patients do these things called timed activities and I'm sure Cole's mom remembers them well. where basically in the beginning of the program, they have to do the same activities such as a crab walk every day, and they get faster and stronger until they plateau. And this is to help prove to them that they're getting stronger, and they are getting stronger. They'll have a lunch break. Um, Then they'll maybe have an activity group. Activity group activities might involve going out into New Brunswick and doing a scavenger hunt or a cooking activity, Um, and then they'll have more physical therapy. Um, We also have school as part of our program. Our patients are very busy with their therapeutic program. However, many of our patients will have their school be um, approved to teach them at our school, and they'll have some school. Um, And then in the the evenings, there's some time to do some um, reflection and get ready for the next day. So it's very busy for them. Uh, Stephanie, uh, as you're seeing your son respond to this treatment, what did you learn about what was happening uh, in his body that caused him this pain and how it was being alleviated through uh, this drug-free program? Well, I would say from a layman's perspective, and Dr. Bentley can interject if I'm um, saying this incorrectly, but... The way I understood it was that his um, brain, and it it was registering pain signals almost in a constant loop. So we had this injury, the pain signals moved around towards the injury, and then after the injury was healing, these pain signals were constantly looping, and they were never resolving oneself. Um, And so that he was feeling real pain, but there was no reason that his body needed to be going through that. So through this cardiovascular activity, through this physical therapy, and through this OT, it was retraining his body on how to just manage not only the pain, but to realize that I'm okay, I'm healthy, everything is fine with my body. It's retraining it to not have to be in that constant loop. Dr. Bentley, did you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You know, the words like amplified are exactly what you were mentioning. You know, the signals are just magnified, you know, and it's it's called pain out of proportion to what we might think that you would have. So, in fact, Cole's pain got worse instead of getting better. 
Um, and that's kind of what happens. It's that loop. And then, you know, the patients have a lot of trouble functioning in their daily lives and then they can't go to school and then it becomes hard to sleep and then it becomes hard to do extracurricular activities and it becomes hard to be able to go see friends. And then by the time they come to us, they've really not been in that normal life of a youngster that we like them to be in. Um, and we have to kind of reset that. One of the reasons we make the program so structured is so that we can describe to the youngster that if they can do this here, then they can go home and do their daily routine. With Cole, by the time he came to us, he hadn't been in school for quite some time. So towards the end of his program, we would simulate the school day for him. You know, you wake up in the morning, you take a shower, you get dressed, you get your backpack, you eat breakfast, and then you go off to school. And so we did a lot of school simulations specifically for Cole so that when he went back, he felt like he could do it. And he really did beautifully when he went home. So that was great. And uh, how many programs are like this in the country? There's um, anywhere between 13 and maybe 15 the last time I looked. Um, I think that they're very far, few and far between that have this intensive program that we're talking about, you know. Many times patients can do outpatient therapies and hope to improve, but if that doesn't work, these these comprehensive programs are really the most evidence-based things that we have to help improve youngsters like this. Uh, I had asked uh, Stephanie earlier about uh, the travel time uh, and the time commitment um, going from Connecticut to New Jersey and being there for her son uh, during that, that the treatment that was there for over a month. But concerns about disparities in access, uh, Dr. Bentley, and how, you know, when, for our listeners who, you know, maybe their child is experiencing something similar, um, just the fact that if they have to go out of state, I mean, how does that work with insurance? Yeah, so um, we are very lucky in our program. We have a patient navigator, um, and she kind of helps the families from the moment they call us. Um, and she works with them, and I work with them to get the insurance to approve this. We have a pretty good success rate with that. Um, we basically have to prove to the insurance company that this is something that our patients need, and we work very hard to try and do that. Um, we have been able to get out-of-state approvals for our patients. Sometimes it takes a little longer, but it is possible. One thing about our program is our program is an inpatient program, so our patients stay overnight with us. Some of the other programs are day hospital programs, which definitely have their benefits. However, that's even harder because if the patients are traveling, then they also need to find somewhere to live. Um, but it is, you know, doing a program like this is asking a lot from a family. Um, however, if it works, then they get their child back. Um, and when we were talking about um, just a, a few programs, and when you look at uh, the number of hospitals nationwide, uh, one thing that we were interested in is so often we think about chronic pain, the focus is on adults. Um, you know, why isn't there more focus on chronic pain in children, Dr. Bentley? Well, I think maybe we're just at the surface of it. I think that for some reason, young children might be having more of these pain syndromes than they used to. Um, so we need to provide more support. One thing I will say is that for children, there are there is more access to programs like this in terms of not using medications, which I think is really great. Um, adult in the adult world, that's starting to happen now um, because of the concerns that we all have heard about and. Um, been learning about and obviously we've learned about medical school um, with just treating pain with medications. There's so many other ways you can treat pain um, and they're really multifactorial. So though there might not be as many programs for children, the programs that we have out there are similar to ours in that we can really use a multidisciplinary approach, which can be very helpful. Uh, Stephanie, uh, how is Cole doing today? He's doing fantastic. Um, 
we were told that when he came out of the program, three things could happen. He could have a lesser degree of pain. Um, he may resolve this issue and he may not have another issue again throughout his lifetime. Or he could have occasional flare-ups um, under certain circumstances, whether it be a lower immune system or an additional injury or such. And he falls into the category of having uh, occasional flare-ups. But they are so manageable. It is nothing compared to the experience that he had for almost a year when this initially happened. He has a game plan, his toolkit. He loves the meditation. That was one of his favorite things to do in the program. So he immediately does a guided meditation. He does it now even when he's not in pain. Um, I get him to do cardiovascular exercises if he's focused in on one area of pain because we noticed that over time it's not necessarily the amplified pain throughout his whole body, but if he um, sustains an injury, he has increased pain for long durations in one area. So we do exercises in that guided area, anything to increase his heart rate and mobility. Um, like Dr. Bentley mentioned before, you know, these children get used to not moving when they have pain. And this is all about, and he's learned, moving when I do have pain. So he's learned a lot from the program. I, can, it, I really can't say enough wonderful things. He became quite a young man when he came out of that program. Mm. Uh, Dr. Bentley, uh, from hearing uh, a bit of Stephanie's story about uh, how Cole came to this diagnosis more than 10 months later, is it possible that, you know, some of these children could be diagnosed sooner if their pain was taken more seriously by, depending on the doctor or specialist that they're brought to? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think we definitely need more awareness about these kind of pain syndromes, although, like I described in the beginning, you know, it's really a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's important to rule those other things out. And then we're kind of left with the amplified pain syndrome. Now, hopefully it would take less than 10 months for sure. Um, but Cole's story kind of evolved over time also. And sometimes that's how it goes. But every patient is different. And what happens after uh, a patient like Cole is discharged? I mean, is there other ways that uh, these parents can stay connected? Yeah, so that's um, really a lot of what we do is a lot of education. So just like um, Stephanie was describing, you know, we want to give these patients a toolkit of what to do if I'm having a bad day, what to do if I'm worried something's going to happen. You know, patients with pain and people in general really need to exercise. We know that exercise is really great for many reasons. However, especially for people in chronic pain, it's like so important. I tell my college students, you know, you're going to go to college and you're going to think you don't have time for this, but we need to keep you moving so that we can keep you in college, you know? Um, and so they really need to follow what is called a home exercise plan. Now for someone cold age, it could be playing a sport or going to a gym class. That could be their home exercise program, but we really encourage these patients to be very active. Um, so we teach them all these things in the program. So the first half of the program is usually about us asking the patients what to do. And then the second half is about us teaching the patients and having them show that they can do it. Also, I usually follow up with the patients about three months after discharge, and then I'm, I'm prepared to follow them longer, or they may follow with their referring physician just so that they have some sense of support. We have started a reunion um, that Cole came to one time um, where we have an opportunity for the patients to come and get together in some sort of physical activity so that they can see each other. Another benefit of the program is these youngsters know now that they're not alone because we usually have at least some small group of patients with this condition in our hospital. And I think for a lot of our patients, they feel very isolated when they have this. And they realize, you know, my friend in the program got through it too. So sometimes they maintain those relationships when they leave. Uh, Stephanie mentioned that Cole does have an occasional flare-up. Is this a syndrome that will continue through his lifetime? 
You know, it depends on every patient. The literature shows that children, in contrast with adults who have chronic pain, are have a more have a better chance of improving their pain totally and becoming pain-free. However, every patient is different. Um, and that's why we want to do the education because we don't want a small injury to become a big pain syndrome again. Um, I wanted to know a little bit more um, from Stephanie. It's not easy talking about uh, personal experiences. And, and I'm curious about why you chose to share your story and Cole's story. I feel like if at least one family can find an answer sooner than we did, then uh, that would just brighten my day. Because I can't begin to tell you how heart-wrenching it is as a parent to watch your child go through so much pain day and night for months on end for almost a year and not be able to do something. And if I just had one piece of information, if I was just in the car listening to this program and heard something that would have just flagged me to check um, it could have changed a lot of his uh, recovery time, and he wouldn't have had to miss four months of school, and he wouldn't have had to go through as much pain. So I just feel it's not something that people are aware of in general, and I think it's just coming to light now. And the more we talk about it, the more people will understand that chronic pain is very real in children. Uh, Stephanie, you mentioned awareness is important. Uh, you had quite a journey from one specialist to the next. Um, is there advice for parents uh, who may be listening uh, that might uh, cut a little bit of that uh, back and forth out of, of uh, trying to find a diagnosis for their child? Well, being that it's a diagnosis of exclusion, it's kind of hard. You're going to have to go the gamut. But if you're dealing with pain for pain in the joints, pain in the body, pain with the nerves. My thought now, knowing what I do know, is that I would have gone to a pediatric rheumatologist a lot earlier on. But I didn't necessarily know that because it was a head injury and we went the gamut, you know, had pain in his ears. So we went to the ENT, we went to the neurologist. We did what we thought made the most sense at that time because it was constantly changing as the months went by. But had I gone to the pediatric rheumatologist um, earlier on, might have had a diagnosis earlier, but we don't know for certain. Well, we're glad to hear that that Cole is doing better. Stephanie Dennis, again, is a Connecticut resident and mother. She joined us today from the studios of WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. Stephanie, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Also, Dr. Catherine Bentley, a physiatrist and director of the Chronic Pain Program at Children's Specialized Hospital. Dr. Bentley, thank you. Thank you. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to Kion Wolf and Carmen Baskoff. To learn more about the show, go to wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.